Welcome to Pullback, the podcast that digs into the ethics behind everyday choices. We are a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network, and you can check out our partner shows at harbingermedianetwork.com. I'm Kyla Hewson, and I'm here with Kristen Pugh. Hello. And today we are introducing one of our favorite episodes, vegetarianism. This is like one of our first episodes, eh? It's also like, I think the only episode where we've actually talked about moral philosophy, which is an interesting thing, given that this is an ethical podcast. Oh, yeah. I suppose you would think that would come up more often considering our subject matter. (laughs) (laughs) I would say for vegetarianism, stay tuned to hear which Renaissance, famous Renaissance man used to let chickens loose in markets. Oh, I can't remember the answer. Is, is Is it Leonardo da Vinci? God damn it, Kyla. (laughs) (laughs) Now they don't have to listen for any reason. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, without spoiling anything else, and without any further ado, please enjoy this throwback. (laughs) (laughs) I did a lot of research on it. It was kind of interesting, though, uh, because I assumed the research would be easy because I am already vegetarian, and I know most of this stuff. But there's actually a lot of facts that were sort of underlying the assumptions that I had. So there's a lot more there than I was expecting. And, you know, I thought that my challenge would be easy because I have been a vegetarian in the past and I don't eat a lot of meat already. But I had trouble. I'll tell you. Uh, When we get to the (laughs) challenge, we'll talk about it. But this was a more challenging episode than I think either of us expected. I think so. I mean, my challenge, I kind of... um... I took an easy challenge this week, uh, but I did more research, so I feel like that's kind of fair. (laughs) I don't know. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, honestly, my challenge wasn't that hard either. I just had a hard week. (laughs) (laughs) But we'll get into that. Uh, I think you have some pretty cool ways to start this off, so take it away, Kristen. I shall. I suppose we should start by talking about what vegetarianism is. Um, And that is more of a complicated question than you might think, because there are a whole bunch of kinds of vegetarians. And uh, the definition like has not been consistent over time or over place. So I basically was Googling online just to make sure that I got all of the common types of vegetarian. And then I sort of lumped them into three categories, the vegetarian inclined, the vegetarian, and then the vegan. So vegetarian inclined are people that I don't think can actually call themselves vegetarian, but are aspirationally working towards vegetarianism. Um, So that includes people that define themselves as semi-vegetarian or flexitarian. um, And that means that they sometimes eat meat, but they're trying not to eat meat. Guilty. I feel called out right now. (laughs) Well, I mean, it's fine. That's a great thing to do, but it probably doesn't mean you can call yourself vegetarian. And I'm always like, when I'm at an event and somebody calls himself vegetarian and then grabs some chicken and they say, oh, I sometimes eat meat, I just kind of <laughs> give them a little side eye. <laughs> it's fine if you want to be flexitarian, but call yourself flexitarian if that's what you are. Okay, yeah, I feel better then because I definitely don't <laughs> brag about being a vegetarian when I am definitely yeah. not. <laughs> so the next category within the vegetarian inclined is polotarian, which are people that eat poultry and fowl. Again, not really considered vegetarian, but sometimes people use that term to describe themselves, and it means they don't eat red meat, so that is that is a dietary restriction that does not include certain meats. To be fair, actually, I feel less bad eating turkey than I do eating other animals because turkeys are dicks. 
I like that. When we talk about the ethics of animal welfare, we I don't think I had certain animals are dicks as a justification. <laughs> but I feel like that could be fair. Uh, so the other one in that category is pescatarian. I feel like this is pretty common. It's people that just eat fish. When I was sort of stepping stoning towards being vegetarian, I was a pescatarian for a while. So definitely, I don't think you can call yourself a vegetarian if you're in any of those categories, but I think it can be a good way to be. And uh, being flexitarian or polotarian, I've never met anyone that is that, um, or pescatarian. Is, uh, <laughs> if that's you, that's great. Good job, you. So the next category is people that are vegetarian. And there are basically three different categories depending on whether you eat dairy, eggs, or dairy and eggs. The most common is ovo-lactarian or lacto-ovo-vegetarian. So those are people that eat cheese and eggs. The next is lactarians, so people that eat dairy but don't eat eggs. And then there are also ovo-vegetarians who eat eggs but not dairy. And then you have vegans. Uh, so those are people that don't eat any animal products at all. We're going to do a whole episode on them, but I just wanted to highlight two different categories of vegan um, because I had never heard of one of them before. So the first one is just vegans uh, who don't eat any animal products. Um, and then there are vegans, so vegans that eat bee products. Oh my God, I'm already calling it. <laughs> that is what I'm going to be if I ever turn into a vegan. <laughs> You're going to be a vegan? <laughs> <laughs> Boo, Kristen, I'm leaving. This right. is well. That's the end of the episode. All right. Uh, thank yeah, you. This was this uh, was a nice podcast yeah. idea. Now we're done. <laughs> you can get us on Twitter at uh, no. Okay, let's keep going. <laughs> yeah. Don't add me. Never add me. <laughs> vegans. Okay. Uh, the other thing about vegans, vegans, and I know that we're gonna go into it when we do our a whole episode on like uh, veganism, but. There's like some people who are so hardcore vegan that if you might eat um, like a plant-based uh, diet, but you can't technically call yourself a vegan if maybe you own a pair of leather shoes or whatever. Veganism is like more of a lifestyle um, than a dietary choice. I found that they often prefer that description anyway. I don't know. Yeah. I'm like... Working aspirationally towards veganism, um, but it is much more intense and difficult. Not only that, but also, I mean, we'll get into my challenge um, this week a little later, but looking at the alcohol that you drink, things that you might not necessarily assume that there is an animal product of some kind, but there might be. So oftentimes you'll have vegetarians that are very strict on things like that, so they won't eat candy that has gelatin in it. I would put myself in that category. But people may not look that much in depth into what might have animal products in it. And so oftentimes in the, the vegetarian category, we're not as careful about that, whereas vegans are very careful about it as a general rule. Yeah. Like I had a friend who recently became, I think he was becoming a vegan and he was like, Coca-Cola is vegan, right? And I was like, yeah, it's just sugar. And then we looked it up and actually, no, there's like a fish oil in the coloring or something. I can't remember exactly. I probably shouldn't say, but it's not vegan basically. Mm -hmm. And you can't tell from the label. You just have to do some like deep dive Googling. And then it's like, oh, this drink that's literally just sugar still somehow <laughs> isn't vegan. Still somehow has fish or something in it. Yeah. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the history of vegetarianism, because I think that's actually pretty interesting. So humans essentially have been vegetarian since before recorded history started. And anthropologists actually believe that a lot of early humans would have eaten a predominantly plant-based diet, um, just because uh, that was 
the easiest thing to be able to cultivate. Plants don't run away. So most of the calories that humans <laughs> got in sort of early human history would have been from plants anyway. One of the first societies that was noted as being sort of explicitly mostly vegetarian for sort of cultural or ethical reasons is actually the ancient Egyptians. So they refrained from eating meat except during festivals and special occasions, um, and that was primarily for religious reasons. They did eat meat on occasion, but mostly got their, their calories most of the time from, from plants. And then there were the Pythagoreans. Have you heard of Pythagoras? <laughs> I've heard of Pythagoras. Please don't ask yeah, me. Yeah, what do you do know the, about him? <laughs> I, I, something about triangles. <laughs> yeah, he's he's the right angle triangle guy, right? <laughs> but but he was also like he had this weird cult around him. Actually, uh, there was this whole he had this whole sort of ethical system that was set up, and there were a group of people that followed his practices called Pythagoreans, and they were vegetarian for religious and ethical reasons. So Pythagoras considered it wrong to treat any animal differently than someone anyone would treat a human um, because he believed that all living things had a soul, basically. So it's sort of a belief that we have throughout a lot of history, but he was sort of one of the earliest or the earliest known proponent of that idea. A sort of fun fact around that is that he also didn't eat beans uh, because he believed that's what humans were made out of. <laughs> so. But they weren't all good ideas. <laughs> I love, I love old mathematicians and their ideas. Like some, especially the ones that got like some things dead on, and then some yeah. things like who is that guy who thought that the world lit up because uh, light came out of our eyes? I can't that, that was Aristotle. That. Yeah, fucking yeah. wild. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it would have been awesome to be a thinker in ancient Greece. Um, although we wouldn't have had rights, but. Uh, to be a male sort of privileged thinker in ancient Greece, because you could have just made up like whatever shit you wanted and probably some patron would fund you to to think more about it. Yeah. And if, you know, if they it, like, you're like, oh, that kind of makes sense, right? Like everywhere I look, I can see stuff. So <laughs> it's got to be laser beams shooting out of my eyes. It's it's the uh, the natural explanation. <laughs> I think Aristotle also invented this, this like the snorkel. I know that's not relevant to this episode, but it's a fun fact. <laughs> For many years, at least in Western history, a vegetarian diet was actually known as a Pythagorean diet. So really until modern vegetarian comes around, uh, there's still that legacy of Pythagoras and his theories about the soul. So uh, during the Renaissance, actually being a Pythagorean was considered to be heresy. Um, and during that same time, you sort of contradictorily saw various figures adopting a Pythagorean diet and speaking out against animal cruelty. One figure that I would not have expected to have been in this category, but is, is Leonardo da Vinci. So he, he followed a Pythagorean diet and he was actually known to just go around in the marketplace and just free any caged birds that he saw, which I like. Oh my God, I love it. <laughs> that is so funny. <laughs> I think it's like, it's so, um, it's so in contrast with what my mental image of Leonardo da Vinci is, you know, he's like this, this sort of polished thinker that invents things, but he's just also like running around causing havoc with birds at the marketplace. He's just this, this wholesome <laughs> prankster as well. <laughs> yeah. So um, even though in the Renaissance, there was like still really, really big pushback against uh, a Pythagorean diet. Moral arguments against meat consumption started to gain speed during the Renaissance, although it was still very much a fringe theory. 
So then you get to the early vegetarian movement. The term vegetarian was first listed in the dictionary, the Oxford English Dictionary anyway, in 1839. So that's about the time when early vegetarianism starts to, to take off. And the first vegetarian society formed in England in 1847. Um, and then shortly after that, the American Vegetarian Society formed in New York um, in 1850. So you're starting to see groups, um, affinity groups around vegetarianism take off, and the term vegetarian is becoming more popular. So some notable early vegetarians include Susan B. Anthony, the suffragette, uh, Mahatma Gandhi, um, who followed a practice of non-injury, George Bernard Shaw, and Leo Tolstoy, who he had this really weird egg-based vegetarian diet. Um, if you're interested, just Google some of his recipes. They sound really disgusting. <laughs> so I totally believe it. <laughs> I, to I, I, I've just finished reading a couple of his books, and uh, I totally believe that he would have a weird diet. He was also an asshole to his wife, but... <laughs> yeah, I could see that too. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's a shame. That makes me sad. I'm glad you told me that so I don't go around being like, oh, Leo Tolstoy's amazing, and then everyone else is like, oh, he was a wife beater or whatever, and I'm like... Well, I don't think he was actually a wife beater. He was just like an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> just like emotionally manipulative. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he was. Um, I could see that. He insisted on her like reading his diary and he would include details about his affairs in it. Like, Whoa. Yeah, he was a weird guy, but not necessarily a monster. Oh, you know? just, it's, why, why are the good authors always so strange? Creativity, Kyla, that's why. Um, so anyway... You start to see around sort of like the mid to late 1800s, vegetarianism takes off. And then in the early 20th century, you really start to see it take off even more. Um, and at that time, vegetarianism was really associated with um, temperance and abstinence. So I don't know if you've heard about the like John Kellogg, the, the cornflakes guy. Yeah, he was a really big uh, like non-masturbation guy um, and also a vegetarian and uh that is not as coincidental as it might seem that a lot for in a lot of cases, the early vegetarians also sort of practiced. They didn't drink. Um, abstinence was a big thing. It was it was sort of a it was about like morally sort of removing yourself from pleasure. That was sort of part of it, at least for some people. For others, it was primarily an animal welfare thing. There's also an uncomfortable association between those early vegetarians and the eugenics movement. Certainly not everybody, but a fair number of early vegetarians were eugenicists, which I find fascinating because for, for me, the respect of human life and animal life go hand in hand. So I, I don't understand how that came to be a set of ideas that were together. But anyway. I mean, to be fair to them, eugenics was really popular just in that, <laughs> like in that, in that like time period that they were living in. You know what I mean? Like it was just a really big deal back then. And it's one of those things that maybe it was a product of their social spheres as well as, you know, maybe it, they found a way for it to go hand in hand with vegetarianism, I guess. But also it's just nice to know what the zeitgeist was like at the time. <laughs> like eugenics was a pretty popular yeah, idea. Yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so glad, glad that's mostly over. Um, Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Let's stick to history. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Too topical. All right. Uh, so anyway, um, vegetarianism sort of went mainstream or more mainstream anyway in the 70s. So there are two books that are really strongly associated with the rise of vegetarianism. One is a book called Diet for a Small Planet by Francis Moore Lapp. 
And the other one is Peter Singer's Animal Liberation, and they were both published in the 70s. And so you'll see, um, we're going to talk about animal welfare and environment as kind of the two ethical issues around being vegetarian. And that's really something that from the 70s, um, and even really earlier, but certainly from the 70s, those are sort of the two ethical frames that, that take off for, as the reason that people become vegetarian. So then you see sort of like today's culture, uh, plant-based diets or vegetarianism are increasingly popular. So as of 2018, about 10% of the Canadian population is vegetarian or vegan. And uh, that's according to research done by this guy who calls himself the food professor. His name's Sylvain Charlebois. He's really cool. You should follow him on Twitter. He's done some research and it's, it tends to be younger Canadians that are vegetarian or vegan. And it is sort of about 10% of the population, although it can be um, in some demographics, I think, I think under 35 range, I might have the wrong age range, but for sort of young people in Vancouver, it's about a quarter of the population. So Ooh. Uh, depending on where you are, vegetarianism can be much more than 10% or it can be less. That's cool. I like that it's younger people too. It gives me hope for the future, except that it's already too late. Oh no. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> sad. Oh, Although they boy. don't measure flexitarianism. And I feel like that's been the, the big rise. So uh, but the 10% the of the population figure for Canada actually isn't unique to Canada. I found also a figure for Americans. So about 8% of Americans are vegetarian or vegan. Um, and that number has actually been relatively flat since the late 1990s, which I found really interesting. There hasn't been a lot of movement. Whereas if I'm recalling the Canadian study correctly, it's been a while since I since I read the figures. But there has been an increase here. So that's I thought that was kind of interesting. Flexitarianism isn't something they commonly include in polls. They don't ask, are you flexitarian? Partially because it's a pretty new term. But it's gaining popularity as well. So between 2014 and 2018, sales of meat substitutes doubled in the United States. So it went from a market of 702 million to uh, to 1.44 billion. So you can thank me for some of that. I love my veggie sausages. <laughs> Beyond burger, it's smashing the marketplace. Uh, <laughs> that's it for the history of vegetarianism. Do we want to do the challenge now or do we want to go to ethics? <sighs> the ethics are going to be so sad. Let's just get into it. Let's do the ethics and then we'll end on our challenges, which are going to be a bit of a high note. Oh gosh, this is going to be so dark. Everybody buckle in. Yeah, strap in, folks. As I mentioned before, there are sort of two poles of the vegetarian movement. Um, one is animal welfare concerns, and the other is environmental concerns. We're going to talk about both of those. The animal welfare piece, uh, we're going to try to make it funny, but it is going to be a lot more depressing than the environmental one. So just please, you know, hug a pill or something. <laughs> I don't know. So there are sort of two questions when it comes to animal welfare and vegetarianism, if you're looking at it from an ethical perspective. The first question is, in general, is it wrong to raise and kill animals for human consumption, even if it's done humanely? And that's oftentimes where people are having the debate, because it's a, it's a sort of more principled space for the argument. But a second question, and one that I think is actually much more relevant uh, to making ethical consumption decisions is, is it wrong to raise or kill animals for human consumption in the way that we're doing it via industrial agriculture? Ooh, spoiler alert, yes. <laughs> yeah, so in the way that we mostly have to buy our meat and eggs and dairy products. 
Vegans then would extend the question, and we'll talk about this more in that episode. They'll ask, can you ever sort of, whether it can ever be right to use animals as sort of a human ends. So that would include um, extracting milk, taking honey from bees, even if they don't end up dying in the process, which oftentimes they do. So you're still, if you're eating an egg, you're probably complicit in the death of at least one animal, so... Oh, and can we talk about cheese rennette as well, or rennet, or however you pronounce it? We we can, but <laughs> but not right now. <laughs> it's so depressing. Everything has secret meat in it. So, the debate on animal welfare has oftentimes been put into a frame of sort of animal rights or animal suffering. The sort of more extreme version of the argument um, is that animals or non-human people have rights. And the argument for animal rights typically relies on taking aim at the difference between animals and humans and saying, while humans have rights, animals are like humans in this way, therefore animals should have rights. So some of the characteristics that non-human person rights activists will bring up are that they have similar levels of biological complexity, they're conscious and aware that they exist, They know what's happening to them. They like some things and don't so much like other things. I think anybody that has a pet can recognize that, you know. They um, make conscious choices. They live in a way that tries to give themselves the best quality of life. They even, to a certain extent, plan their lives, and the quality and length of life matters to them. So those are sort of the things that animal rights activists and advocates will bring up when they're trying to make the claim that animals are like humans. For people that argue that animals shouldn't have rights, uh, they'll often focus on the differences between animals and humans to make the claim that humans have something special that is why they have rights. They'll often claim that animals don't think, that they're not really conscious. There's also a couple of arguments that have really sort of Christian strands strands to them but have been important historically. Um, And for some people today, The idea that animals were put on the earth to serve humans, um, it's sort of something that people arguing from a Christian tradition often did argue. I think that would probably have less suasion in today's society, maybe, because like environmental stewardship is a thing that we're recognizing is important and we can really fuck up the planet. So why not extend that to animals? Another argument that animals don't have souls, which again is sort of an inherently, you have to believe that a soul exists in order for that argument to matter to you. Um, But if you do, Maybe you don't think animals have souls and therefore we don't need to protect them. That animals don't behave morally. So that's, this is the idea that rights only have meaning in a moral community. So I can't, I can't agree on what is the way I should behave with a tiger because a tiger is not going to be able to understand that. So we don't exist in the same moral community is one of the arguments that's made. As well that they lack the capacity for free moral judgment. All of these conditions um, on both the for and against side are constantly under debate by various people. Uh, there are also like various studies that take aim at particular elements of this, um, although that's not the scientist's intention. They sort of come in neutrally trying to find out, can we teach this animal to push a ball through a hole, even though we think they're not a very complicated animal, you know, things like that. It's, it's like a really moving area, um, and we're, it's really hard to tell what's inside the head of another creature. So I think this is something that's going to be under debate for many years to come. But I feel like every time I turn around, there's some new uh, article about how, oh, we've just figured out that actually octopuses are as smart as we are, or 
Uh, it turns They're out... They're probably smarter, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> or it turns out that, oh, pigs have the same emotional range as human beings. Or, oh, you thought bees weren't conscious? Just kidding. Like, every time I go on Twitter, it's some article from a new scientist study just being like, yeah, um, all of these creatures are smarter than we thought, and we already thought they were pretty smart. Yes, um, and, and emotional, like um, elephants mourn their dead in a way that's very similar to the way humans do. Even cows will, will mourn their dead, like if they take someone away that, they, that this cow is like best friends with, then they'll, at least that's what I've heard, uh, but they'll be really upset about it and go into depression. Yeah, so even though all of this is a matter of dispute, um, I, I don't know, I tend to be of the view that a, a lot of these things, animals at least share in similar, in common a lot of these characteristics, but that's just my personal view and people are, it's, it's not decided by any means. So um, the non-human person's rights movement has oftentimes focused on higher animals like primates when they're trying to make the case that animals should have rights. It's just, um, I think, a strategic calculation mostly that it's easier to convince people that an animal that we know is similar to us because they're linked to us um, from an evolutionary perspective, it's easier to convince people that they are similar to us and should have rights. Um, and there is one uh, fairly significant success that, that was achieved in 2016. A court in Argentina ordered that a chimpanzee named Cecilia had to be released from a zoo where she had been in a zoo with no other chimpanzee companions. And the judge basically ruled that there was an animal welfare interest um, and that Cecilia's confinement was hurting her health and therefore she needed to be released. Oh my God, Kristen, you were like, bring the jokes. You have to liven up this episode, make everyone laugh. And here's Cecilia, the lonely chimpanzee getting like... She got free though. I know, she's, but... she's with her friends now. No, that's still... Uh... Yeah, it's sad. Oh, boy. I guess... we, we should do an episode on zoos, because that's a whole Oh, God. I, you know what? I think that's in the list. <laughs> We've got episodes for years, guys. Nobody even worry. Everything is broken. <laughs> <laughs> Everything sucks. So um, the animal rights argument, I mentioned that's sort of the strongest way that you can frame an animal welfare argument. Another way to go about it is to focus on interests of an animal. So... Peter Singer is kind of the most well-known person that advocates for this perspective. Um, and basically, he rejects a rights-based frame to protecting animals, but instead says that you should use suffering as the metric. And his, um, his sort of justification is rooted in utilitarianism. So essentially, he says that speciesism is wrong, that we shouldn't discriminate on grounds that a being belongs to a species. So instead... We should take into account whether we are causing harm to another being irrespective of what species they belong to. Once he's taken that frame, the argument that Singer makes is basically that the, the key thing we should be concerned about is capacity to feel pain. So Singer is kind of interesting because for this reason, he says that it's okay to eat bivalves, so oysters, mussels, and clams, because scientific consensus so far is that they probably don't feel pain because pain is something that it only evolutionarily makes sense to develop if you can move and bivalves can't move, right? Like we feel pain as a way to, to signal for ourselves that we need to get away from something. But if you can't move, there's really no reason for a pain sensor to be relevant. So probably didn't develop for bivalves. 
just for anybody who's not sure about uh, what utilitarianism is, uh, it's just the basically the ethical belief that the most ethical choice is the one that will produce the greatest good for the greatest number. And it's a really interesting philosophy. And if anybody wanted to look into it further, I definitely recommend it. There's some pretty cool like videos explaining it and stuff online. It's a good one. Yeah. And even if you don't like utilitarianism, you can still have that sort of non-rights-based justification for animal welfare. You would just then put it in the terms of animals not necessarily having rights, but having interests that ought not to be violated, which is the same approach that we take to children in certain circumstances, right? We don't give them things like political rights, but they have interests that we protect in society. Some of those might include the interest of living in decent conditions, making free choices, being free from fear or pain, living healthy lives, and enjoying the normal social family or community life of a species. Um, so you can justify it on those grounds as well. So that's sort of the ideal theory of um, should, we, should we be able to raise and kill animals for our own consumption? But the reality is that we live in far from an ideal world, and the practice of raising animals is what I think I would, to be really kind to factory farming, call a <laughs> hellscape. It's yeah. really Gosh, terrible. Yeah. <laughs> so the average size of farms is increasing all over America, and I wasn't specifically able to find a stat, but I would assume all over the world. And uh, factory farms are operations that have basically a lot of animals in one place. Uh, there's a definition that I found that said a factory farm counted as someplace with 500 beef or dairy cattle, 1,000 hogs, 100,000 egg-laying chickens, and 500,000 broiler Whoa. chickens. I'm trying to think in population terms. It's more than the population of the town we grew up in is like these chickens on this one farm. Yeah. Edmonton has like 800,000, 900,000 people. So yeah, nice. so that's two, two broiler chicken farms. So these are huge farms, truthfully. And if you're thinking, oh, well, factory farms, that's just the extreme. No, sorry. But the vast majority of meat is factory farmed. Again, I found a figure for America, but there's no reason to assume that it's different in Canada or Europe. 99.9% .9 of chickens are factory farmed, 97% of laying hens, so all those ovo-lacto-vegetarians, we are not off the hook, 99% uh, of turkeys, 95% of pigs, and 78% of cattle. So most of the time, if you're eating meat, uh, unless you're specifically looking for... Wild game. Yeah, or like humane, or if you're like somebody that goes out and shoots your own deer or something, uh, you're probably eating factory farmed meat. So this is relevant to you. Oh my God, I feel so sad right now. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't want to like spend too much time on factory farms. I think everybody has heard something about them and knows that it's intuitively awful. But essentially, there are farms in which everything is organized to maximize production and so the choices that are made are not in support of good conditions for animals. It's in support of how do you get this animal to the weight it needs to be to go to slaughter uh, as quickly as possible? And how can we do that for as many animals as possible, as cheaply as possible? I don't think we'll talk about this that much in the episode, but it's also shitty on, on labor rights for a lot of similar reasons. Um, chicken workers are just in really terrible situations. But let's talk a little bit about 
animals in factory farms. So the first thing to to think about is that they have very little space most of the time. Uh, so a few examples that you might have heard of already. Um, when breeding sows are pregnant, they're put in something called gestation crates. Um, if you Google this, it's really horrific. They are basically completely immobilized. They can't turn or anything. Uh, most chickens are kept in something called battery cages, which hold five to ten birds, and each bird might have the equivalent amount of floor space to a sheet of letter-sized paper. So animals crowded together, oftentimes they're put in situations where they can't fully be mobile, and that's that's where they live for their whole lives. I think as most people can understand if you've been on a subway car, um, overcrowding and boredom creates stress and that can cause aggression. So in order to deal with that, rather than giving animals more space, factory farms actually like remove body parts. So for chickens, turkeys, and ducks, they often have their beaks removed. Yeah. So they can't peck each other. And uh, most pigs actually have their tails cut off to prevent them from biting each other's tails. I didn't know the tail thing. So I knew the beak thing, but this t the tail thing, that's a, uh, that's a new fun fact. I'll use that at dinner parties. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't this podcast fun? Uh, 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 <laughs> we talked about Pythagoras for a while. I am having an existential crisis over here. <laughs> this is really going to speed up my transition to, veg to veganism, I think. I know. I'm really glad that uh, my challenge involved not eating meat for the last two weeks because <laughs> I'm feeling a lot better about my diet. <laughs> if I'd gone into this after eating a hamburger, I think I'd be sick. Yeah, I mean, the other solution, though, is like if you're in theory okay with eating meat as long as it's humanely produced is, I mean, there are two avenues. One, you can only eat humanely produced meat. And two, you could lobby government to put in place better regulations. So farms can't do shit like this because it should be illegal. I know that's an opinion and not fact-based, but this is a podcast and I am going to state that opinion. <laughs> this isn't your thesis, Kristen. You can say anything you want. <laughs> Citation Pew 2019. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I mean, even free-range eggs that you get, like, off the Whole Foods shelf or whatever, they're not really in much better conditions than the chickens that are stuffed five to a cage, like you were talking about. No, it's really like, oh, they can have, like, a couple feet. It's not great. There are some farms that are really good about it, though, so maybe we should devote an entire episode to this question. Uh, anyway, um, so overcrowding, in addition to like pissing people off um, and animals off, um, it also means that animals get sick a lot because just shoving a bunch of animals together, the transmission of disease increases Ooh, a lot. Ooh, are we going to talk about antibiotics now? Yeah, do you want to talk about antibiotics? I just had a quick note that like, that's why there's so many antibiotics. But if you want to expand no, on No, no, I was, <laughs> no, I just, I've just... I've been reading it like we have we have an antibiotic crisis on our hands basically and we'll link to some articles on this because it's really interesting but a lot of it is because of the factory farming industry and I had no idea until I was reading about it recently and it was like oh my god like these like these farms aren't already nightmarish <laughs> enough yeah they're also going to lead to antibiotic resistance and superbugs that kill us all so hooray Egg-laying chickens are put through something. I just like found some other things that I thought were fucked, so I'm just going to say them. Uh, Egg-laying chickens are put through something called force molting, where they're denied food for up to two weeks in order to shock their bodies into another egg-laying cycle. Um, and calves are... Basically, they go into feedlots, and they're fattened for slaughter on like a really unnatural diet, 
so that they can reach market weight. And once the, we reach that weight, they're, they're killed. So can you imagine that being your entire life? Like you're ripped from your mother and then you're shoved in this like shitty feedlot fed way more than you need or want, not really allowed to move. Um, and then you basically like go in a truck where you're, you're killed. When do you have a note on the rape machines for cows as well? Like, no, mm, yeah, I thought that might be too dark. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry, we'll just uh, gloss over that then. Uh, yeah, uh, honestly, guys, yep. however dark yep. you think this episode is, we could go a lot darker, <laughs> and we're already being really opinionated and and heavily biased with everything we're saying, and it's not even the worst stuff. Well, I really think like if you talk to most people about factory farms, even people that would never consider a vegetarian diet and you just explain factory farms, people are like, yeah, that's kind of messed up. Uh, it's just it's just a, a matter of like it's a complicated reality that gets us there. So people would rather not focus on it, I think. And that's that's a natural thing. You don't really have much control about uh, over factory farms. But I think one way you can take control over these kinds of issues is to make make choices that push the market in a direction. So if that for you means eating humane certified meat, that might be a way to go. Um, or taking a plant-based diet. Or it's, I mean, it's, it's tricky. It depends on, it depends on who you are. You know, if you're a busy single mom working two jobs, then obviously it's a lot harder for you to go to the local farmer's market and buy mm -hmm. wild game from, you know, your local farmer. And so it's just so much more convenient to to go into the shop and just buy something off the shelf. And it's this cognitive dissonance where you're like, I know this is wrong, but here are my justifications. And your justifications are good, you know? So it's like, how do you, mm -hmm. how do you find a balance? I think that's real and it's fair, right? Like it's a lot easier for you or I to be vegetarian or to eat humane sourced meat in the sort of neighborhoods and cities where we live and being sort of more sort of privileged elements of society than it is for other people. And that's fair. Yeah, single, able-bodied, young people who are working and can sometimes, you know, afford to go buy maybe the more ethical items. Although a vegetarian diet is a lot cheaper than buying wild game. It is. Genuinely, if just try vegetarianism, it's not it's not that hard, honestly. Um, uh, so should we talk a little bit about environment? Yeah, that, that should be a lot more fun. And actually, it's not all that depressing, because I think it leads to a fairly straightforward answer, which is that just eating less meat gives you huge environmental gains. So if you weren't persuaded by the animal rights arguments or you found that overwhelming, the good news is that just reducing your meat consumption can give you a bunch of sort of environmental points. So that's a way to feel good. That's how I'll positively frame the environment. So I'll just start by saying that the scale of animal agriculture is part of what makes it an environmental problem. So approximately 70 billion animals are raised annually for human consumption, which if you think about it like that, that is way more animals than it is people. Yeah, that's <laughs> a, a lot of animals. I mean, yeah. And you know, even though, you know, you've, you've noticed that like, in, especially in Canada, the statistics for vegetarianism are slowly rising and probably flexitarianism, even though there's no metric for it, that's probably sky, like it must have skyrocketed, especially in the last uh, decade. But 
as other countries develop, the demand is rising because it's like a way to show off your wealth to to eat these things. And so it's only a problem that potentially could get worse because I feel like that is growing at a rate that is faster than the rate at which people are becoming vegetarian. But I don't know. This is just, this is me anecdotally speaking. I don't actually have the numbers to back this up. Maybe you tell me that I'm wrong. I don't know. No, it, it is a growing industry. I actually had a stat for it. And then I was like, nah, I won't say that. So I'm sorry. <laughs> but, uh... <laughs> no, I feel validated. Thank you. <laughs> but no, and it's not just, it's important to note that it's not just like developing countries. It's also a trend that is happening slash has happened in Europe and North America as well. If meat production has peaked here, uh, which I'm not sure that it even has, it was very recent. Um, so meat consumption, even if there's maybe a trend in the market towards people being more vegetarian, flexitarian, also at the same time, the people that aren't are eating more meat than they used to and more fish than they used to. Yeah, so. everybody thinks that they have to have a certain amount of meat at every meal. And from the reading that I've done, that's just not true. You don't need to be eating that sort of amount of meat. Personally, I only eat meat usually like max a couple of times a week and I'm fine, you know? So, but I, I don't know. My, my dietary and health requirements are obviously going to be different than other people. So I don't, I'm not a doctor. Please don't at me. <laughs> <laughs> well, and a uh, fun fact for people that either aren't Canadian or don't read the news as much as I'm, I'm a huge news junkie, the Canada Food Guide, the new one, it, explicitly didn't include meat as a as a food group and it was seen as a huge triumph of expertise uh, over lobbying interests so good job canadian government and fuck you andrew Shear, for criticizing them for it like oh my god just because your Let's, kids yeah. like to eat chocolate milk doesn't mean that that's healthy what are you doing <laughs> oh my goodness andrew Shear was like there should be meat in the food guide because my children drank chocolate milk and now they're fine and it's like wait what that's none of this of makes all, sense false equivalency <laughs> also chocolate milk isn't meat <laughs> also he was drinking milk out of a beer glass why <laughs> Okay, that that I do find charming. <laughs> That's endearing. Uh, now I wish I had voted differently. Kyla. <laughs> <laughs> All right, breezing past that. Lots of animals are raised annually for human consumption, about 10 times as many people as there are on Earth. And from an environmental perspective, animal, animal agriculture is less efficient than plant-based agriculture simply because we also need to feed animals when we raise them. There are some other animal-specific environmental concerns, but mainly when you're wondering, well, okay, why is animal agriculture worse? It's because you have to then do a whole other cycle, right? If you're just growing soy for human consumption, you have to deal with the environmental impact of soy. If you're looking at cows, you also have to deal with the soy feed that they have, right? We touched on the soy thing briefly in the, in the milk episode that we did as well, that basically like... If you think the Amazon is burning because of vegetarians having soy products, you are mistaken. It's because cows are eating soy products. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, just keep that in mind that it's um, you have to move up a food chain. So you have to feed animals plant feed that also takes energy and land and stuff to grow. So there was a really cool study that I found. Um, it was by Clark Springman Hill and Tillman. And they looked at the multiple health and environmental impacts of food. So basically, it was a super cool study. People should check it out. 
but they are looking at five health metrics, so mortality, coronary heart disease, colorectal cancer, diabetes, and stroke. And they were saying, okay, based on conglomerating those, what are the healthy foods? Um, and then they compared it against five environmental metrics. So um, these are actually mostly, we're going to use four of the five when we're discussing environment. So they're relevant for sure. So acidification potential, eutrophication potential. That's if you guys remember from the alternate milks episode, that's about algal blooms, right? Greenhouse gas emissions, land use, and water use. Um, and the study essentially finds that unprocessed and processed red meat is the worst for both. Not healthy, not good for the environment. Animal products like chicken, fish, and dairy are healthier, but they're not good for the environment. Um, and plant-based foods like nuts, legumes, vegetables, and grains are healthier and better for the environment. That's generally what they find. They have these cool maps that show you um, all the different metrics. So you can see like a wide circle for meat because they're bad on everything. And then like mostly <laughs> narrow circles for the vegetables. But like in some cases, like for nuts, because we talked about this already, they use a little bit more water. Um, so that one spikes out a little bit on the water metric, but then on other ones, it's sort of closer in. Cool. We'll link to that for sure. I want to see these maps. Yeah. For people that are nerds, you'll love it. <laughs> <laughs> the hashtag everybody listening to this podcast. Okay. So let's talk about the different environmental metrics. So we'll talk about land use, greenhouse gas emissions, water footprint, air pollution, and eutrophication. So land use, animal agriculture uses up a lot of land. So approximately 26% of Earth's ice-free land is used for li livestock grazing. Um, and beyond that, 33% of croplands are used for livestock feed production. So Ugh. it's a huge amount of the planet. Like at least a third of the planet is being used for animal agriculture um, if you're including croplands. So it's pretty huge. Um, and we've talked about land use on the podcast before, um, but essentially you want land use to be as efficient as possible because we have a finite amount of space on the planet. So the more space that we put towards agriculture or animal agriculture, the less we have for carbon sinks like forests and wetlands. And we have to take care of this stuff because you can't grow you can't grow plants on Mars. Sorry, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. Like <laughs> we have to take care of the planet we have. <laughs> There is no planet B, as climate activists like to say. So Climate Nexus estimates that replacing beef with plants in your diet reduces the land footprint of that food by 90%. That is a pretty huge gain that you get if you decide to eat plants instead of beef, which I think beef may be the most space intensive, but really all sort of animal agriculture is going to be more space intensive than eating plants. So you can get a huge gain on land use if you're not eating meat. What about greenhouse gas emissions? So animal agriculture is a major contributor to climate change. It's responsible for an estimated 18% of human-caused emissions. That is a pretty huge chunk if we're looking at ways that we can address the climate crisis. Animal agriculture is sort of one of those big targets that we could look at. And in particular, animal agriculture is responsible for some of the more harmful greenhouse gases. So Often when we're talking about greenhouse gases, we're talking about CO2, carbon dioxide, but animal agriculture produces some of the more harmful ones. So um, it's responsible for 44% of methane emissions and 44% of nitrous oxide emissions. So Is it because the cows are farting so much or what? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I'll go into the causes a little more, but yeah, basically. <laughs> so... <laughs> 
why are emissions higher for animal agriculture? First, uh, greenhouse gas emissions in animal agriculture are from methane released from digestive processes. So Cow farting, farts. burping. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, and also in animal manure. So when they shit. <laughs> <laughs> Just in case anyone didn't know what manure was. <laughs> I love that we put the little E on our podcast. You know, uh, I, I had some feedback from a friend who was like, hey, if you guys swore less, then maybe you wouldn't alienate people who would love your podcast, like my mom. And I was like, come on, your mom's going to love it, even though we're swearing. Don't don't even. Your mom is sweet. Yeah. Well, I feel like we had this discussion of whether to swear in the podcast or not, and I have been liberally saying the F word. Um, I'll just say it again. Fuck. <laughs> We, we put it in our descriptor just to, so that people know what they're getting into. But it's because some of the stuff we're talking about is so fucked up that there's just no other way to describe it, you know? Yeah. I also feel like it just, um, it's cathartic, you know? Oh, God. And we need that when we're talking about... We're, we're learning about bad stuff. I want to yeah. say fuck. Fuck this. Fuck that. Fuck everything. Burn it down. <laughs> but also, maybe we won't burn it down because that would affect carbon emissions so i'll find Convert it into a wetland that should be the new burn it down. <laughs> <laughs> i'll slot that on a t-shirt <laughs> excellent um okay so yeah the first one is like cow cow farts and burps but in addition to that when land is converted to animal agriculture which often means tree uh clearing trees that res results in a loss of stored carbon so you have to take that um greenhouse gas effect into uh, consideration um and then Fossil fuels are also used to produce um, mineral fertilizers for feed production, which also have other environmental harms. So, hooray! Climate Nexus, the same group that I'd referenced before, estimates that replacing beef with plants in your diet reduces the greenhouse gas emissions by 96%. So Whoa! You can make a huge impact by just eating more plants and eating less meat. What about water footprint, though? <laughs> We've talked about water footprints on the podcast, uh, but a reminder, um, most of our water footprint comes from the indirect water usage that it takes to make our food. So it's not us flushing toilets, it's us eating stuff that used a lot of water to be made. And generally speaking, meat is a lot more water intensive than plant-based foods. So per calorie, beef is 10 times more water intensive than vegetables, and it is three times as water intensive as nuts. Just a note that nuts are the most water-intensive category of plant-based foods, so the fact that beef is still three times more water-intensive is pretty significant, I would say. Um, chicken is actually slightly less water-intensive to produce than nuts per calorie, but the difference is fairly minor, and there are a number of other environmental harms that I think would outweigh this very small difference. Okay, so that's water footprint. Chickens maybe not so terrible, but other meats are. And actually, they didn't have fish in that metric, um, I think, because unless you're using aquaculture, I, I don't know, it must be harder to measure or something, but I don't know the answer on how water-intensive fish is to produce. Okay, so air pollution, that's another one. One that you might not think of as being associated with animal agriculture, um, but animal agriculture is really bad for the air, and it is making us sick, so it's not great. Um, in addition to releasing those greenhouse gases that I mentioned before, animal agriculture produces a lot of particulate matter, and uh, ambient air pollution is responsible for about 8% of all deaths annually, so 
Particulate matter is one of the main causes of ambient air pollution. So it, it is killing a lot of people. Um, and you might think particulate matter, what the hell is that? And also it sounds like it might be caused by cars, which is true. Um, so particulate matter is basically just like stuff in the air that gets into our lungs. And a lot of it is caused by cars. So when you're, when you're looking at a smoggy city, so when you see a picture of like Delhi and it's just hazy, it's because it's like tiny little particles of dust and soot and other pollutants that if you're not wearing a mask, will just go right into your lungs. And then when you're wearing a mask and you take it off at the end of the day and you look at it, it's just revolting. <laughs> yeah. And depending on how small the particulate matter is, masks, um, they're not going to catch a lot of it too. So there's really no way to win. Um, but yeah, a lot of it is caused by cars, but depending on where you are, the leading source may be agriculture actually, rather than cars. So basically what happens is, um, there's all kinds of stuff on farms, so dry manure, feathers, bits of feed, animal dander. When those break down, they're released into the air and they're like sort of carried for kilometers and kilometers or miles and miles, depending on where you are. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that, that gets into our, our air that we breathe. So if you're in like the middle of a city with a lot of traffic, Probably, yeah, it's cars more than agriculture, but if you're in a suburb that's near farms, probably agriculture is the top cause of particulate matter. So you're being polluted by cars, yeah, but also by, you know, chicken shit, basically. Mm, yum, yum, yum. <laughs> Everyone's going to be really hungry after this episode. <laughs> oh, God. I don't know if I'll ever eat again. <laughs> okay, last environmental metric is eutrophication. We mentioned this on the alternative milks episode as well, but essentially animal agriculture pollutes our waterways leading to eutrophication, which is those algal blooms. Um, there are a few different sources of eutrophication in animal agriculture. So one is that the nitrogen fertilizer that's used for crop feed, um, it runs off and leaches. So that's also the case for plant crops. But again, because so much of our crops are used for feed, it is a particular problem for animal agriculture. Uh, there's also the runoff and leaching that happens from manure. So shit is getting into the waterways and it is messing our ecosystems up. Um, and then aquaculture is another really sort of rising cause of eutrophication because um, essentially um, they generate large amounts of nitrogen and phosphorus from the excrement, uneaten food and like dead fishies that end up or like, I don't know if fish have dander, but like dead organic tissue from from fish. Can you remind me why algal blooms are bad again? It just sounds like, oh, a little bit more algae, whatever, right? Yeah, so they, they'll they often lead to like the deoxygenation of a waterway. So in addition to polluting our fresh water, this creates um, something called ocean dead zones, uh, which is as bad as it sounds. The runoff of nitrogen and phosphorus creates low oxygen areas or no oxygen areas that affect fish reproduction or can even kill fish. There are more than 400 ocean dead zones worldwide, and the size of ocean dead zones has quadrupled since 1950. Most dead zones are on coasts because they are connected to agriculture. So they're bad because they like run like roughshod over ecosystems, um, and also because they can contribute to ocean acidification, which is another way that ocean ecosystems can die. So it is not good. I have a fun fact about algae uh, to lighten the mood a little bit. I 
have a bunch of bear facts that I bust out when I'm traveling or talking to people who maybe aren't from Canada, because people love bears, obviously. <laughs> who doesn't love bears? And I found out recently that polar bears have hollow fur. So their fur is actually clear, it's not white. And the way that the sun hits it and refracts inside the hollow stem of the fur makes them appear white, which is how they can blend in on snow and stuff like that. And when you have polar bears in captivity, if they're in a warmer climate and their ponds have algae in them, then the algae will seep into their hollow fur and turn polar bears green. That is a fun fact. Yeah, so you might get a green polar bear. I mean, it's a bit of a depressing fun fact because it's about polar bears in captivity who are turning green, but also green polar bears, come on. Yes, both of those things are true. <laughs> I'll, I'll just end by saying on environmental grounds, it's pretty clear that it is better to eat less meat or to eat no meat um, on basically all of the metrics. Um, if you are interested in moving toward a plant-based diet for environmental reasons, there's a book that's a really helpful starter. It's called Food is the Solution, um, and it's by Matthew Prescott. If you've been vegetarian for a while, I would not recommend getting this book. But if you are looking to be vegetarian or looking to be flexitarian, it's got a lot of good recipes for people that are sort of like, well, what does it even really mean to be vegetarian and what can I eat? They're really accessible recipes that sort of will give you the basics. So you've got a few things that you can put together easily that will give you sort of a balanced diet. For anybody who is worried that uh, they might not get enough protein, they might not get enough iron, uh, there's so many plant-based foods that are full of those nutrients, just absolutely chock-a-full, and they're healthier in a lot of cases. And you just, it does take a little bit more uh, thinking ahead before you're planning your meals and stuff like that, but it definitely can be done. Uh, there's, and that's, that's why, also, like, that's only until a habit forms. After that, it's like, if you didn't grow up assuming that you structured meals around protein, you would have had to figure out how to get protein anyway, right? Like, I just know I put like nuts or beans or legumes or something in in each meal, and then I have enough protein, and it's not that hard. Yeah, and... Kristen, with her B12 deficiency, can just grab some B12 fortified, you know, almond milk, maybe not almond, oat milk. <laughs> Listen to our milks episode to learn which milk is the best. Spoiler, it's oat. But you can grab fortified stuff, stuff that has those vitamins built into it. So if you are struggling, uh, there are some cheats and ways around it. Okay, should we talk about our challenges since it's been an hour already? Yes, let's. So as I've mentioned, uh, I've been a vegetarian for some time. I still do eat eggs and dairy, but I'm trying to move away from it. So I usually don't have them at home. But it made it kind of hard for me to figure out what my challenge would be for this week because we are planning to do Veganuary. So I didn't want to do that one too early. Uh, so what I tried to do was focus on an area of vegetarianism where I know that I've kind of fucked up in the past. Um, and that's vegan alcohol. I know I don't check as much as I should. Sometimes I will buy that bottle of French red that I haven't looked into at all, knowing for sure that it's been clarified with an uh, animal product. And I, I want to stop doing that. <laughs> this, is, this is wild because I had no idea that it's the same with the Coca-Cola thing. Things that literally it's just like sour grapes that have been left to sit for a while somehow isn't vegetarian. How? <laughs> Yeah, so there are two basic ways that you could have a non-vegan wine. 
So the first way doesn't really matter so much to vegetarians. Um, so that would be if dairy or honey is used. So oftentimes if there's a beer that is like a chocolate stout and it is not vegan, that could be because, I mean, it could be the clarifying agent that's possible, but it could be just because they've used some dairy to give you that like creaminess that they want. Totally possible. Wait, what's a clarifying agent? I forget. Yeah, sorry, that's what I was going to say next. Um, oh, <laughs> sorry. So the second way is uh, is through the filtration process. So in order to sort of like clarify or get rid of some of the silt so that you've got a smoother looking and tasting alcohol, um, they use a clarifying agent. Um, and there are lots of non-animal types of clarifying agents available, but a lot of times people will default to the sort of more traditional ones. So those can have something called isinglass, um, which is made from fish bladder. It can have gelatin in it. It can have egg whites or seashells. And so those are all animal products. So if you're looking for vegan wine or beer or whatever other alcohol, if you find it, that it just means that you haven't used an animal-based clarifying agent. Um, and I think it's just easier to to look for vegan wines than it is for vegetarian because there's not a lot out there on vegetarian wines. And frankly, if you're making the effort, you may as well just, you know, get that vegan wine anyway. Um, so that's what I decided to do anyway. So I, I thought, okay, I will go to the LCBO, which is Ontario's government liquor store, and I'm going to find a vegan wine, and I'm going to pour myself a glass of that vegan wine, and it's going to be a great evening. Um, <laughs> because so <laughs> Kristen's going to base most of her challenges on alcohol because she is a lush. <laughs> <laughs> Not untrue. Uh, so anyway... <laughs> I found this article that a vegetarian society had come up with that listed vegan wines. And so I was like, perfect, I'll start with this because there is a website, which is what I ended up using, um, but I find it really overwhelming because unless you know what you want, it's really hard because they just have everything. They have like 47,000 entries, it's a lot. Um, so I thought I'll just start with this WordPress entry that some vegan has come up with and it'll be right. So the, the one that I went with was a Bacco Noir um, from Sandbanks, which I think is, yeah, it's an Ontario-based wine. So I'm also buying local. Uh, <laughs> and brag much. <laughs> I did not intend to. The other two options were Californian and Argentinian, but neither of them ended up being vegan. So I just went with the one that was. The way that I found out whether they were vegan or not was going to a website that's actually based out of Toronto. I found out today when I was researching it. And it's called Barnivore Vegan Alcohol Directory. So it's at barnivore.com. Um, and it's a really cool website. They're, they say that they're planning to make a mobile app for it, but that one hasn't been officially set up yet. And essentially, you just you go to the website and you type in the name of whatever alcohol you're looking at getting. It will tell you, is it vegan or not? And it'll sort of give you the history of... They basically contact companies and ask them, um, is your product vegan? And if it is vegan, they put it with like a little green square. If it's not, they put it with a red square. So it's it's a pretty easy visual way, but you have to know what you're looking at getting first. So I will say, after I had picked the wine that I wanted, I thought, okay, let's just go test out some of my favorite beers as well. And uh, most of the ones that I would drink are vegan, actually. So I'm not sure how well this will play for people outside of Ontario, because a lot of the beer that I drink is 
Ontario-based because we have a government liquor store that it sells a lot of good Ontario craft beer, but like Collective Arts is a very big brand and it's vegan. And there there are lots of really good vegan beer options. I think it's just less common to use the the clarifying agents that are animal-based. So I don't think that companies are trying to be vegan. I just think they naturally kind of are. Whereas with wine, there seems to be a tradition of having used animal-based ones. So especially if you're looking at like red wines from France, it can be really hard. I'm sure there are brands if you really look for them, but are they the brands that are in my Canadian liquor store? Not necessarily. Um, Whereas there is a fair number of Ontario ones I found. So anyway, that was my that was my liquor store experience. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's cool. It's you. I, I mean, I know you didn't think it was a super interesting challenge, but it was more difficult than you expected. And also, I I didn't know wine had animals in it. Like you saw my texts when you told me. I was like, everything is broken. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this vegetarian thing was so much more difficult than I thought. Even just for the two weeks. Uh, I was on, so basically my, my, my new job that I've been doing is I'm a tour guide to, uh, the Rocky Mountains and, uh, Vancouver area. The chaperone that I was sitting next to offered me a pepperoni stick and I was like, no, I'm vegetarian right now, so I can't have it. And she's like, oh, I understand. And then she handed a pepperoni stick to the driver, to the two people next to me and to the two people behind me, which means that on all four sides, I I could like smell pepperoni stick. And then she offered it to me again and I was weak. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, yes, please. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Person was really not helping you out there. <laughs> oh, she was so nice, and I, yeah, I did text you uh, the other day. I was fly, I, I was on another tour, and I was <laughs> I was flying home, and my period was three days late, and it kicked in, and it was because it was late, it was extra extra tough. And I landed, and I was I texted Kristen, I was like, "Girl, I need a cheeseburger like right now, or I'm gonna flip <laughs> a table over." <laughs> and, and I didn't. It was good. I went and got some vegetarian oh, so junk food. I know. I was. I. I wanted it so. I was like, gosh, I could really. I could really use a cheeseburger right now. I'm tired. I'm crampy. I'm low on iron because I'm losing blood. <laughs> like, <laughs> but it was fine. I didn't do it, and now I feel really good about myself for not doing it because this whole conversation would feel so much worse for me if I know that secretly I had had a McDonald's cheeseburger the other day because oh that's my junk food of choice too and McDonald's is evil for so many other reasons beyond factory (laughs) farming so it's like a like a double hit and a triple hit if I get a coke with the with the meal and it's like oh god (laughs) yeah this was uh this was a tough challenge but the first week was the hardest until like, yeah, the day before yesterday when I was flying home and I really wanted that cheeseburger. But other than that, I actually found it pretty easy. And then last night I went out and I bought a bunch of fresh vegetables and made a really good vegan stir fry uh, while I was hecka stoned. So that that was actually lovely. (laughs) So that was my challenge. I feel pretty good about it. I wish that I had been able to do something else because that would mean that this challenge was as easy as I had thought it would be. Now I'm really, I don't know, Veganuary I thought was going to be a piece of cake, but now I'm not so sure. Because even while I was doing this, I think I ate a couple of things with cheese and cheese I found out recently isn't vegetarian really because... And I don't know, again, I mentioned this earlier in the in, in the episode, but there's this thing called rennet or rennet. I can't remember how to pronounce it because I'm a hack. But basically, in order to 
I can't even describe it. Do you know can do you know how to describe rennet? No. <laughs> I do know that it is not vegetarian though, and it's in pretty much every cheese. I'll include a link to this issue because it's I think a little bit more complicated than I can explain because even I have trouble understanding it, but basically they're using enzymes from the stomach lining of animals to help make cheese and these animals are killed in the process and it's really horrific i'll i'll include a link but basically if you're eating cheese and it's got um animal rennet in it then it's not vegetarian so i think in that regard i probably failed as well because i'm sure that i had cheese a couple of times during this uh challenge no and like i'm definitely guilty of um eating like a pizza out and not asking questions so it's tricky. I think that's an area where a lot of vegetarians fail. Yeah, and it's just and it's because it's because you don't know. I didn't know this cheese thing until I I don't know, I was looking up something else a couple of months ago and this came up and I was like, "Oh no." I mean, like cheese isn't already evil enough when you think about how it's made, but also it's not even vegetarian because the animals are killed, but I don't know if it's better or worse to be trapped in a factory farm being milked you know, or just to be dead. Like, it's, ah, this is so depressing. Um, yeah, totally. It's complicated. <laughs> I am excited to do the vegan challenge. Yeah, I'm hoping it actually makes me vegan. Yeah, I don't, I don't expect that I'll ever be fully vegetarian or, or fully vegan. That's kind of the lesson that I'm taking away. This two-week stretch has been really good for me, though, I think, for making me realize just, first of all, how much I was eating and for making me think about it a lot more. I think that I'm going to make better choices uh, in moving forward. I'm going to try and keep the vegetarian thing going. But I probably um, am going to try and still buy fish because uh, I do really like to eat fish, uh, especially for my own like health and stuff like that. I just am a big fish person, but I'm going to try and get it from local farmers, especially since, uh, or a f local fishermen, especially since like I live in Vancouver there, I have no excuse. <laughs> I, I can definitely find local fish. So that I think I'm going to, to keep going with, I don't know, maybe the fish farming episode will change me. I'm going to try and have less dairy slash no dairy, uh, if I can, but there is an argument to be made for the term that I found, and I'll link to this article, uh, ethical omnivore. So if the meat you're buying is ethically sourced, if you're buying local, if you're buying from local fishermen, from maybe people who are, I don't even know, getting wild game if you can, but even our veg vegetarian options can be really unethical. Um, this article that I'm going to link to basically says that demand for quinoa, for example, has led to overproduction and unstable crop prices for Peruvian farmers, and avocados are associated with drug cartels and deforestation in Mexico. And so it's just, it's not, it's not that being vegetarian is the be all and end all ethical choice, you have to think about every aspect of what you're buying because it's all broken. And I mean, this is partially what the whole podcast is about, right? Is that your answers on what is ethical for you, I mean, partially has to do with your circumstances, but partially has to do with what values are most important to you. So if you're somebody that cares most about labor rights or the environment, you're going to come down with different answers than if animal welfare is the most important thing to you, right? Those are going to lead you to different answers and, and that's okay. That's fine. 
It'll be really interesting to see how my diet in particular develops because I've come into this as the as the flexitarian and <laughs> and you've come in as the you know ethical vegetarian and uh, not ethical. I'm ovo lacto, so I'm not really <laughs> even doing my job. <laughs> so I think it'll be really interesting to see how even we develop as we learn more about this stuff. Yeah. So my call to action is to look at an app called Less. You can get it certainly from the Apple App Store. I'm not sure about Androids, um, but it's kind of neat. Basically, the idea is you can set your own goals for how much meat you're eating in a week, and it'll tell you whether you are succeeding or failing at that. If you do want to just go to zero meat, you can do that, um, but this will also help you if you want to be flexitarian and eat, say, meat four times a week. So I would recommend checking that out. Yeah, and I think you might be surprised at how often you eat meat because sometimes you don't even think about it. A pepperoni stick here or there, you know what I mean, really adds up. Yes, exactly. And so if you want sort of an easy way to visualize that, Less is a really good app that you can try. Cool. So yeah, we'll check out that, we'll check out that Less. And uh, if anybody wants to at us, don't. <laughs> <laughs> if you insist, <laughs> you can get us at uh, uh, at uh, Kristen's Twitter handle, which she'll tell you right now. It's at Kristen Pugh. The last name is P-U-E. And you can get us at Pullback Podcast. And if you want to at me directly on Twitter, I mean, I'm never on Twitter. I'm so bad. I, I don't even know my own Twitter handle sometimes, which is what I'm checking right now. <laughs> Is it not? Is it Kyla Tech or is that just your Instagram? That's just my Instagram. <laughs> Don't Instagram me. <laughs> Am I just accidentally doxing you? <laughs> uh, I changed my Twitter handle so that it would be easier for me to say, and it's just at Kyla Hewson. So you can you can you can you can dox me there, uh, or yeah, you can get us on Instagram at Pullback Podcast. We'll put up some nice pictures you don't have to worry about factory farming pictures on our insta we want that to be a yeah. safe space <laughs> we will not be like PETA. Uh, <laughs> i do retweet PETA sometimes though so just if you're thinking about following me keep that in mind <laughs> <laughs> great thank you so much for listening you guys this week was a was a tough one but i think i certainly learned a lot and i hope everyone else did too yeah and we look forward to seeing you next time bye